how graves give up their dead, and how the night air hideous grows with shrieks. Chapter 1 Midnight The Hailstorm The Dreadful Visitor The Vampire The solemn tones of an old cathedral clock have announced midnight. The air is thick and heavy. A strange, death-like stillness pervades all nature. Like the ominous calm which precedes some more than usually terrific outbreaks of the elements, they seem to have paused even in their ordinary fluctuations to gather a terrific strength for the great effort. A faint peal of thunder now comes from far off. Like a signal gun for the battle of the winds to begin, it appeared to awaken them from their lethargy, and one awful, warring hurricane swept over the whole city, producing more devastation in the four or five minutes it lasted than would a half a century of ordinary phenomena. It was as if some giant had blown upon some toy town and scattered many of the buildings before the hot blast of his terrific breath. For as suddenly as the blast of wind had come did it seize, and all was as still and calm as before. Sleepers awakened and thought that what they had heard must be the confused chimera of a dream. They trembled and turned to sleep again. All is still, still as the very grave. Not a sound breaks the magic of repose. What is that, a strange pattering noise as of a million fairy feet? It is hail, yes. A hailstorm has burst over the city. Leaves are dashed from the trees mingled with small boughs. Windows that lie most opposed to the direct fury of the pelting particles of ice are broken, and the rapt repose that before was so remarkable in its intensity is exchanged for a noise which, in its accumulation, drowns every cry of surprise or consternation which here and there arose from persons who found their houses invaded by the storm. Now and then, too, there would come a sudden gust of wind that in its strength, as it blew laterally, would for a moment hold millions of the hailstones suspended in midair. But it was only to dash them with redoubled force in some new direction, where more mischief was to be done. Oh, how the storm raged. Hail. Rain. Wind. It was, in very truth, an awful night. There was an antique chamber in an ancient house. Curious and quaint carvings adorned the walls, and the large chimney-piece is a curiosity of itself. The ceiling is low, and a large bay window from roof to floor looks to the west. The window is latticed and filled with curiously painted glass and rich stained pieces, which send in a strange yet beautiful light when sun or moon shines into the apartment. There is but one portrait in that room although the walls seem paneled for the express purpose of containing a series of pictures. That portrait is of a young man with a pale face, a stately brow, and a strange expression about the eyes, which no one cared to look on twice. There is a stately bed in that chamber of carved walnut wood as it made, rich in design and elaborate in execution. One of those works that owe their existence to the Elizabethan era. It is hung with heavy silken and damask furnishing. Nodding feathers are at its corners, covered with dust are they, and they lend a funereal aspect to the room. The floor is of polished oak. God, how the hail dashes on the old bay window. Like an occasional discharge of mimic musketry, 
It comes clashing, beating, and cracking upon the small panes. But they resist it. Their small size saves them. The wind, the hail, the rain expend their fury in vain. The bed in that old chamber is occupied. A creature formed in all fashions of loveliness lies in a half-sleep upon that ancient couch. A girl young and beautiful as a spring morning. Her long hair has escaped from its confinement and streams over the blackened coverings of the bedstead. She has been restless in her sleep, for the clothing of the bed is in much confusion. One arm is over her head, the other hangs nearly off the side of the bed near to which she lies. A neck and bosom that would have formed a study for the rarest sculptor that ever Providence gave genius to were half disclosed. She moaned slightly in her sleep, and once or twice the lips moved as if in prayer, at least one might judge so, for the name of him who suffered for all came once faintly from them. She had endured much fatigue, and the storm dose not awaken her. But it can disturb the slumbers it does not possess the power to destroy entirely. The turmoil of the elements wakes the senses, although it cannot entirely break the repose they have lapsed into. Oh, what a world of witchery was in that mouth, slightly parted and exhibiting within the pearly teeth that glistening even in the faint light that came from that bay window. How sweetly the long silken eyelashes lay upon the cheek. Now she moves, and one shoulder is entirely visible, whiter, fairer than the spotless clothing of the bed on which she lies, is the smooth skin of that fair creature, just budding into womanhood, and in that transition state which presents to us all the charms of the girl, almost of the child with the more matured beauty and gentleness of advancing years. Was that lightning? Yes. An awful, vivid, terrifying flash. Then a roaring peal of thunder, as if a thousand mountains were rolling one over the other in the blue vault of heaven. Who sleeps now in that ancient city? Not one living soul. The dread trumpet of eternity could not more effectually have awakened anyone. The hail continues. The wind continues. The uproar of the elements seems at its height. Now she awakens, that beautiful girl on the antique bed. She opens those eyes of celestial blue, and a faint cry of alarm bursts from her lips. At least it is a cry which, amid the noise and turmoil without, sounds but faint and weak. She sits upon the bed and presses her hands upon her eyes. Heavens, what a wild torrent of wind and rain and hail. The thunder likewise seems intent upon awakening sufficient echoes to last until the next flash of forked lightning should again produce the wild concussion of the air. She murmurs a prayer, a prayer for those she loves best. The names of those dear to her gentle heart come from her lips. She weeps and prays. She thinks then of what devastation the storm must surely produce, and to the great God of heaven she prays for all living things. Another flash, a wild, blue, bewildering flash of lightning streams across that bay window, for an instant bringing out every color in it with terrible distinctness. Shriek bursts from the lips of the young girl, and then with eyes fixed upon that window, which in another moment is all darkness, and with such an expression of terror upon her face as it had never known before, she trembled, and the perspiration of intense fear stood upon her brow. What? 
What was it? She gasped. Real or delusion? Oh, God, what was it? A figure tall and gaunt, endeavoring from the outside to unclasp the window. I saw it. That flash of lightning revealed it to me. It stood the whole length of the window. There was a lull of the wind. The hail was not falling so thickly. Moreover, it now fell. What there was of it straight and yet a strange clattering sound came upon the glass of that long window. It could not be a delusion. She is awake and she hears it. What can produce it? Another flash of lightning, another shriek. There could be now no delusion. A tall figure is standing on the ledge immediately outside the long window. It is its fingernails upon the glass that produces the sound so like the hail. Now that the hail has ceased, intense fear paralyzed the limbs of the beautiful girl. That one shriek is all she can utter. With hand clasped, face of marble, a heart beating so wildly in her bosom that each moment it seems as if it would break its confines, eyes distended and fixed upon the window, she waits, froze with horror. The pattering and clattering of the nails continue. No word is spoken, and now she fancies she can trace the darker form of that figure against the window, and she can see the long arms moving to and fro, feeling for some mode of entrance. What strange light is that which now gradually creeps up into the air, red and terrible, brighter and brighter it grows. The lightning has set fire to a mill. The reflection of the rapidly consuming building falls upon that long window. There can be no mistake. The figure is there, still feeling for an entrance, and clattering against the glass with its long nails. It appears as if the growth of many years had been untouched. She tries to scream again, but a choking sensation comes over her, and she cannot. It is too dreadful. She tries to move. Each limb seems weighted down by tons of lead. She can but in a hoarse, faint whisper cry, Help! 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 And that one word she repeats like a person in a dream. The red glare of the fire continues. It throws up the tall, gaunt figure in hideous relief against the long window. It shows, too, upon the one portrait that is in the chamber and the portrait appears to fix its eyes upon the attempting intruder, while the flickering light from the fire makes it look fearfully lifelike. A small pane of glass is broken, and the form from without introduces a long, gaunt hand, which seems utterly destitute of flesh. The fastening is removed, and one half of the window which opens like folding doors is swung wide open upon its hinges. And yet now she could not scream. She could not move. Help! 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 Was all she could say. But oh, that look of terror that sat upon her face was dreadful. A look to haunt the memory for a lifetime. A look to obtrude itself upon the happiest moments and turn them to bitterness. The figure turns half round and the light falls upon its face. It is perfectly white, perfectly bloodless. The eyes look like polished tin. The lips are drawn back, and the principal feature next to those dreadful eyes is the teeth. The fearful-looking teeth, projecting like those of some wild animal, hideously, 
glaringly white and fang-like. It approaches the bed with a strange gliding movement. It clashes together the long nails that literally appear to hang from the finger ends. No sound comes from its lips. Is she going mad? That young and beautiful girl exposed to so much terror. She has drawn up all her limbs. She cannot even now say help. The power of articulation is gone, but the power of movement has returned to her. She can draw herself slowly along to the other side of the bed, from that towards which the hideous appearance is coming. But her eyes are fascinated. The glance of a serpent could not have produced a greater effect upon her than did the fixed gaze of those awful, metallic-looking eyes that were bent down on her face. Crouching down so that the gigantic height was lost, and the horrible protruding white face was the most prominent object came on the figure. What was it? What did it want there? What made it look so hideous, so unlike an inhabitant of the earth, and yet be on it? Now she has got to the verge of the bed, and the figure pauses. It seemed as if when it paused she lost the power to proceed. The clothing of the bed was now clutched in her hands with unconscious power. She drew her breath, short, thick. Her bosom heaves and her limbs tremble, yet she cannot withdraw her eyes from that marble-looking face. He holds her with his glittering eye. The storm has ceased. All is still. The winds are hushed. The church clock proclaims an hour of one. A hissing sound comes from the throat of the hideous being, and he raises his long, gaunt arms. The lips move. He advances. The girl places one small foot onto the floor. She is unconsciously dragging the clothing with her. The door of the room is in that direction. Can she reach it? Has she power to walk? Can she withdraw her eyes from the face of the intruder and so break the hideous charm? God of heaven. Is it real or some dream so like reality as to nearly overturn judgment forever? The figure has paused again, and half on the bed and half out of it that young girl lies trembling. Her long hair streams across the entire width of the bed. As she has slowly moved along, she has left it streaming across the pillows. The pause lasted about a minute. Oh, what an age of agony. That minute was indeed enough for madness to do its full work in. With a sudden rush that could not be foreseen. With a strange howling cry that was enough to awaken terror in every breast. The figure seized the long tresses of her hair, entwining them around his bony hands he held her to the bed. Then she screamed. Heaven granted her then power to scream. Shriek followed shriek in rapid succession. The bedclothes fell in a heap by the side of the bed. She was dragged by her long silken hair completely onto it again. Her beautifully rounded limbs quivered with the agony of her soul. The glassy, horrible eyes of the figure ran over that angelic form with a hideous satisfaction. Horrible profanation. He dragged her head to the bed's edge. He forces it back by the long hair still entwined in his grasp. With a plunge, he seizes her neck in his fang-like teeth. A gush of blood and a hideous sucking noise follows. The girl has swooned 
and the vampire is at his hideous repast. Chapter 2 The Alarm The Pistol Shot The Pursuit and Its Consequences Lights flashed about the building, and various room doors opened. Voices called one to the other. There was a universal stir and commotion among the inhabitants. Did you hear a scream, Harry? asked a young man half-dressed as he walked into the chamber of another about his own age. I did. Where was it? God knows I dressed myself directly. All is still now. Yes, but unless I was dreaming, there was a scream. We could not both dream there was. Where do you think it came from? It burst so suddenly upon my ears that I cannot say. There was a tap now at the door of the room where these young men were, and a female voice said, For God's sake, get up! We are up, said both the young men, appearing. Did you hear anything? Yes, scream. Oh, search the house. Search the house. Where did it come from? Can you tell? Indeed we cannot, mother. Another person now joined the party. He was a man of middle age, and as he came up to them, he said, Good God! What is the matter? Scarcely had the words passed his lips, than such a rapid succession of shrieks came upon their ears that they felt absolutely stunned by them. The elderly lady, whom one of the young men had called mother, fainted and would have fallen to the floor of the corridor in which they all stood had she not been promptly supported by the last comer who himself staggered as those piercing cries came upon the night air. He, however, was the first to recover, for the young men seemed paralyzed. Henry, he cried, for God's sake support your mother. Can you doubt that these cries come from Flora's room? The young man mechanically supported his mother, and then the man who had just spoken darted back to his own bedroom from whence he returned in a moment with a pair of pistols and shouting, Follow me who can. He bounded across the corridor in the direction of the antique apartment from whence the cries proceeded, but which were now hushed. That house was built for strength, and the doors were all of oak and of considerable thickness. Unhappily, they had fastenings within, so that when the man reached the chamber of her who so much required help, he was helpless for the door was fast. Flora! Flora! he cried. Flora! Speak! All was still. Good God! he added. I must force the door. I hear a strange noise within, said the young man who trembled violently. So do I. What does it sound like? I scarcely know, but it closest resembles some animal eating or sucking some liquid. What on earth can it be? Have you no weapon that will force the door? I shall go mad if I am kept here. I have, said the young man. Wait here a moment. He ran down the staircase and presently returned with a small but powerful iron crowbar. This will do, he said. It will, it will. Give it to me. Has she not spoken? Not a word. My mind misgives me that something very dreadful must have happened to her, and that odd noise. 
still goes on. Somehow it curdles the very blood in my veins to hear it. The man took the crowbar and with some difficulty succeeded in introducing it between the door and the side of the wall. Still, it required great strength to move it, but it did move with a harsh crackling sound. Push it, cried he who was using the bar. Push the door at the same time. The younger man did so. For a few moments, the massive door resisted, and then suddenly something gave way with a loud snap. It was part of the lock, and the door at once swung open. How true it is that we measure time by the events which happen within a given space of it, rather than by its actual duration. To those who were engaged in forcing open the door of the antique chamber, where slept the young girl whom they named Flora, each moment was swelled into an hour of agony. But, in reality, from the first moment of the alarm to that when the loud cracking noise heralded the destruction of the fastenings of the door, there had elapsed but very few minutes indeed. It opens, it opens, cried the young man. Another moment, said the stranger, and he still plied the crowbar. Another moment, and we shall have free ingress to the chamber. Be patient. The stranger's name was Marchdale, and even as he spoke he succeeded in throwing the massive door wide open and clearing the passage to the chamber. To rush in with a light in his hand was the work of a moment to the young man named Henry. But the very rapid progress he made into the apartment prevented him from observing accurately what it contained, for the wind that came in from the open window caught the flame of the candle, and although it did not actually extinguish it, it blew it so much on one side that it was comparatively useless as a light. Flora! Flora! he cried. And with a sudden bound, something dashed from off the bed. The concussion against him was so sudden and so utterly unexpected, as well as so tremendously violent, that he was thrown down, and in his fall the light was fairly extinguished. All was darkness, save a dull reddish kind of light that now and then, from the nearly consumed mill in the immediate vicinity, came into the room. But by that light, dim, uncertain, and flickering as it was, someone was seen to make for the window. Henry, although nearly stunned by his fall, saw a figure gigantic in height which nearly reached from the floor to the ceiling. The other young man, George, saw it, and Mr. Marchdale likewise saw it, as did the lady who had spoken to the two young men in the corridor when first the screams of the young girl awakened alarm in the breasts of all the inhabitants of that house. The figure was about to pass out at the window, which led to a kind of balcony from whence there was an easy descent to a garden. Before it passed out, they each and all caught a glance of the side face, and they saw that the lower part of it and the lips were dabbled in blood. They saw, too, one of those fearful-looking, shiny, metallic eyes which presented so terrible an appearance of unearthly ferocity. No wonder that for a moment a panic seized them all which paralyzed any exertions they might otherwise have made to detain that hideous form. But Mr. Marchdale was a man of mature years. He had seen much in life, both in this and in foreign lands. And he, although astonished to the extent of being frightened, was more likely to recover sooner than his younger companions, which indeed he did, and acted promptly enough. Don't rise, Henry, he cried. Lie still. Almost at the moment he uttered those words, he fired at the figure, 
which then occupied the window, as if it were a gigantic figure set in a frame. The report was tremendous in that chamber, for the pistol was no toy weapon, but one made for actual service and of sufficient length and bore a barrel to carry destruction along with the bullets that came from it. If that has missed its aim, said Mr. Marchdale, I'll never pull trigger again. As he spoke, he dashed forward and made a clutch at the figure he felt convinced he had shot. The tall form turned upon him, and when he got a full view of the face, which he did at that moment, from the opportune circumstance of the lady returning at the instance with a light she had been to her own chamber to procure, even he, Marchdale, with all his courage, and that was great, and all his nervous energy recoiled a step or two and uttered the exclamation of, Great God! That face was one never to be forgotten. It was hideously flushed with color, the color of fresh blood. The eyes had a savage and remarkable luster, whereas before they had looked like polished tin. They now wore a ten times brighter aspect, and flashes of light seemed to dart from them. The mouth was open, as if, from the natural formation of the countenance, the lips receded much from the large, canine-looking teeth. A strange howling noise came from the throat of this monstrous creature, and it seemed upon the point of rushing upon Mr. Marchdale. Suddenly then, as if some impulse had seized upon it, it uttered a wild and terrible shrieking kind of laugh, and then turning, dashed through the window, and in one instant disappeared from before the eyes of those who felt nearly annihilated by its fearful presence. God help us, ejaculated Henry. Mr. Marchdale drew a long breath, and then giving a stamp on the floor as if to recover himself from the state of agitation into which even he was thrown, he cried, Be it what or who it may, I'll follow it. No, 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 do not, cried the lady. I must, I will, let who will come with me, I follow that dreadful form. As he spoke, he took the road it took and dashed through the window into the balcony. And we too, George, exclaimed Henry. We will follow Mr. Marchdale. This dreadful affair concerns us more nearly than it does him. The lady who was the mother of these young men and of the beautiful girl who had been so awfully visited screamed aloud and implored them to stay. But the voice of Mr. Marchdale was heard exclaiming aloud, See it. I see it. It makes for the wall. There, there. God, how it bounds along. The young men hastily dashed through a thicket in the direction from whence his voice sounded. And then they found him looking wild and terrified, and with something in his hand which looked like a portion of clothing. Which way? Which way? They both cried in a breath. He leaned heavily on the arm of George as he pointed along a vista of trees and said in a low voice, God help us all. It's not human. Look there. Look there. Do you not see it? They looked in the direction he indicated. At the end of the vista was the wall of the garden. At that point it was full twelve feet in height, and as they looked they saw the hideous monstrous form they had traced from the chamber of their sister, making frantic efforts to clear the obstacle. They saw it bound from the ground to the top of the wall, which it verily nearly reached, and then each time it fell back again into the garden with such a dull, heavy sound 
that the earth seemed to shake again with the concussion. They trembled. Well, indeed they might, and for some minutes they watched the figure making its fruitless efforts to leave the place. What? What is it? whispered Henry in hoarse accents. God, what can it possibly be? I know not, replied Mr. Marchdale. I did seize it. It was cold and clammy like a corpse. It cannot be human. Not human? Look at it now. It will surely escape now. No, no, we will not be terrified thus. There is heaven above us. Come on, and for dear Flora's sake, let us make an effort yet to seize this bold intruder. Take this pistol, said Marchdale. It is the fellow of the one I fired. Try its efficacy. He will be gone, exclaimed Henry. As at this moment, after many repeated attempts and fearful falls, the figure reached the top of the wall and then hung by its long arms a moment or two previous to dragging itself completely up. The idea of the appearance, be it what it might entirely escaping, seemed to nerve again Mr. Marchdale and he, as well as the two young men, ran forward towards the wall. They got so close to the figure before it sprang down on the other side of the wall that to miss killing it with the bullet from the pistol was a matter of utter impossibility, unless willfully. Henry had the weapon, and he pointed it full at the tall form with steady aim. He pulled the trigger. The explosion followed, and that the bullet did its office, there could be no matter of doubt. For the figure gave a howling shriek and fell headlong from the wall on the outside. I have shot him, cried Henry. I've shot him. Chapter 3 The Disappearance of the Body Flora's Recovery and Madness The Offer of Assistance from Sir Francis Varney He is human, cried Henry. I have surely killed him. It would seem so, said Mr. Marchdale. Let us now hurry round to the outside of the wall and see where he lies. This was at once agreed to, and the whole three of them made what expedition they could towards a gate which led into a paddock, across which they hurried and soon found themselves clear of the garden wall, so that they could make way towards where they fully expected to find the body of him who had worn so unearthly an aspect but who it would be an excessive relief to find was human. So hurried was the progress they made that it was scarcely possible to exchange many words as they went. A kind of breathless anxiety was upon them, and in the speed they disregarded every obstacle, which would at any other time have probably prevented them from taking the direct road they sought. It was difficult on the outside of the wall to say exactly which was the precise spot with which it might be supposed the body had fallen on. But by following the wall its entire length, surely they would come upon it. They did so. But to their surprise, they got from its commencement to its further extremity without finding any dead body, or even any symptoms of one having lain there. At some parts close to the wall there grew a kind of heath, and consequently the traces of blood will be lost among it, if it so happened that at the precise spot at which the strange being had seemed to topple over such vegetation had existed. This was to be ascertained, but now, after traversing the whole length of the wall twice, they came to a halt, and looked wonderingly in each other's faces. There's nothing here, 
said Harry. Nothing, added his brother. It could not have been a delusion, at length said Mr. Marchdale with a shudder. Delusion? exclaimed the brothers. That is not possible. We all saw it. Then what a terrible explanation can we give? By heavens, I know not, exclaimed Henry. This adventure surpasses all belief, and but for the great interest we have in it, I should regard it with a world of curiosity. It's too dreadful, said George. For God's sake, Henry, let us return to ascertain if poor Flora is killed. My senses, said Henry, were all so much absorbed in gazing at that horrible form that I never once looked towards her further than to see that she was, to appearance, dead. God help her, poor, poor beautiful Flora. That is indeed a sad, sad fate for you to come to, Flora. Flora! Do not weep, Henry, said George. Rather let us now hasten home, or we may find that tears are premature. She may yet be living and restored to us. And, said Mr. Marchdale, she may be able to give us some account of this dreadful visitation. True, true, exclaimed Henry. We will hasten home. They now turned their steps homewards, and as they went they much blamed themselves for all leaving home together, and with terror pictured what might occur in their absence to those who were now totally unprotected. It was a rash impulse of all of us to come in pursuit of this dreadful figure, remarked Mr. Marchdale. But do not torment yourself, Henry. There may be no reason for your fears. At the pace they went, they very soon reached the ancient house, and when they came in sight of it, they saw lights flashing from the windows and the shadows of faces moving to and fro, indicating that the whole household was up and in a state of alarm. Henry, after some trouble, got the hall door opened by a terrified servant who was trembling so much that she could scarcely hold the light she had with her. Speak at once, Martha, said Henry. Is Flora living? Yes, but... Enough, enough. Thank God she lives. Where is she now? In her own room, Master Henry. Oh dear, dear, oh dear, what will become of us all? Henry rushed up the staircase, followed by George and Mr. Marchdale, nor paused he once until he reached the room of his sister. Mother, he said, before he crossed the threshold. Are you here? I am, my dear, I am. Come in, pray, come in, and speak to Flora. Come in, Mr. Marchdale, said Henry. Come in. We will make no stranger of you. They all entered the room. Several lights had been now brought into that antique chamber, and in addition to the mother of the beautiful girl who had been so fearfully visited, there were two female domestics who appeared to be in the greatest possible fright, for they could render no assistance whatever to anybody. The tears were streaming down the mother's face, and the moment she saw Mr. Marchdale, she clung to his arm, evidently unconscious of what she was about, and exclaimed, Oh, what is this that has happened? What is this? Tell me, Marchdale. Robert Marchdale, you whom I have known even from my childhood, you will not deceive me. Tell me the meaning of all this. I cannot, he said in a tone of much emotion. As God is my judge, I am much puzzled and amazed at the scene that has taken place here tonight as you can be.
The mother wrung her hands and wept. It was the storm that first awakened me, added Marchdale. And then I heard a scream. The brothers, trembling, approached the bed. Flora was placed in a sitting, half-reclining posture, propped up by pillows. She was quite insensible, and her face was fearfully pale. While that she breathed at all could be but very faintly seen. On some of her clothing about the neck were spots of blood, and she looked more like one who had suffered some long and grievous illness than a young girl in the prime of her life in the most robust health, as she had been on the day previous to the strange scene we have recorded. Does she sleep? said Henry, as a tear fell from his eyes upon her pallid cheek. No, replied Mr. Marchdale. This is a swoon from which we must recover her. Active measures were now adopted to restore the languid circulation, and after persevering in them for some time, they had the satisfaction of seeing her open her eyes. Her first act upon consciousness returning, however, was to utter a loud shriek. And it was not until Henry implored her to look around her and see that she was surrounded by none but friendly faces that she would venture again to open her eyes and look timidly from one to the other. Then she shuddered and burst into tears as she said, Oh, heaven, have mercy upon me. Heaven, have mercy upon me and save me from that dreadful form. There is no one here, Flora, said Mr. Marchdale. But those who love you and who, in defense of you, if needs were would, laid down their lives. Oh, God. Oh, God. You have been terrified. But tell us distinctly what has happened. You are quite safe now. She trembled so violently that Mr. Marchdale recommended that some stimulant should be given to her. And she was persuaded, although not without considerable difficulty, to swallow a small portion of some wine from a cup. There could be no doubt but that the stimulating effect of the wine was beneficial, for a slight accession of color visited her cheeks, and she spoke in a firmer tone as she said, Do not leave me. Oh, do not leave me, any of you. I shall die if left alone now. Oh, save me. Save me. That horrible format. Fearful face. Tell us how it happened, dear Flora, said Henry. No, 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 she said. I do not think I shall ever sleep again. Say not so. You will be more composed in a few hours, and then you can tell us what has occurred. I will tell you now. I will tell you now. She placed her hands over her face for a moment as if to collect her scattered thoughts. And then she added, I was awakened by the storm, and I saw that terrible apparition at the window. I think I screamed, but I could not fly. Oh, God, I could not fly. It came. It seized me by the hair. I know no more. I know no more. She passed her hand across her neck several times, and Mr. Marchdale said in an anxious voice, You seem, Flora. To have hurt your neck, there is a wound. A wound, said the mother, and she brought a light close to the bed where all saw on the side of Flora's neck a small punctured wound, or rather two, for there was one a little distance from the other. It was from these wounds the blood had come, which was observable upon her night clothing. How came these wounds, 
said Henry. I do not know, she replied. I feel very faint and weak, as if I had almost bled to death. You could not have done so, dear Flora. There are not above half a dozen spots of blood to be seen at all. Mr. Marchdale leaned against the carved head of the bed for support, and he uttered a deep groan. All eyes were turned upon him, and Henry said in a voice of the most anxious inquiry, Have you something to say, Mr. Marchdale, which will throw some light upon this affair? No, no, nothing, cried Mr. Marchdale, rousing himself at once from the appearance of depression that had come over him. I have nothing to say, but I think Flora had better get some sleep if she can. No sleep. No sleep for me. Again, screamed Flora. Dare I be alone to sleep? But you shall not be alone, dear Flora, said Henry. I will sit by your bedside and watch you. She took his hand in both hers, and while the tears chased each other down her cheeks, she said, Promise me, Henry. By all your hopes of heaven. You will not leave me. I promise. She gently laid herself down with a deep sigh and closed her eyes. She is weak and will sleep long, said Mr. Marchdale. You sigh, said Henry. Some fearful thoughts, I feel certain, oppress your heart. Hush, hush, said Mr. Marchdale as he pointed to Flora. Hush, not here. Not here. I understand, said Henry. Let her sleep. There was a silence of some few minutes' duration. Flora had dropped into a deep slumber. That silence was first broken by George, who said, Mr. Marchdale, look at that portrait. He pointed to the portrait in the frame to which we have alluded, and the moment Marchdale looked at it, he sunk into a chair as he exclaimed, Gracious heaven, how like! It is, it is, said Henry. Those eyes! And see the contour of the countenance and the strange shape of the mouth. Exact, exact! That picture shall be removed from here. The sight of it is at once sufficient to awaken all her former terrors in poor Flora's brain if she should chance to awaken and cast her eyes suddenly upon it. And is it so like him who came here? said the mother. It is the very man himself, said Mr. Marchdale. I have not been in this house long enough to ask any of you whose portrait that may be. It is, said Henry, the portrait of Sir Runnigan Bannerworth, an ancestor of ours, who first, by his vices, gave the great blow to the family prosperity. Indeed, how long ago? About ninety years. Ninety years. Tis a long while, ninety years. You muse upon it. No, no, I do wish, and yet I dread. What? To say something to you all, but not here. Not here. We will hold a consultation on this matter tomorrow. Not now. Not now. The daylight is coming quickly on, said Henry. I shall keep my sacred promise of not moving from this room until Flora awakens, but there can be no occasion for the detention of any of you. One is sufficient here. Go, all of you, and endeavor to procure what rest you can. I will fetch you my powder flask and bullets, said Mr. Marchdale. 
and you can, if you please, reload the pistols. In about two hours more, it will be broad daylight. This arrangement was adopted. Henry did reload the pistols and place them on a table by the side of the bed, ready for immediate action. And then as Flora was sleeping soundly, all left the room but himself. Mrs. Bannerworth was the last to do so. She would have remained, but for the earnest solicitation of Henry, that she would endeavor to get some sleep to make up for her broken night's repose. And she was indeed so broken down by her alarm on Flora's account that she had not power to resist, but with tears flowing from her eyes, she sought her own chamber. And now the calmness of the night resumed its sway in that evil-fated mansion. And although no one really slept but Flora, all were still. Busy thought kept everyone else wakeful. It was a mockery to lie down at all. And Henry, full of strange and painful feelings as he was, preferred his present position to the anxiety and apprehension on Flora's account, which he knew he should feel if she were not within the sphere of his own observation. And she slept as soundly as some gentle infant, tired of its playmates and its sports.